You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Good morning, everyone. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is still in the book of Amos, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Amos, chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, you should be able to find that on page 651 in the Old Testament. Well, today is certainly an exciting day in our country and uh, in our church as well. It's not very often, perhaps every seven years or so, that the 4th of July actually lands on a Sunday. And while on a normal year, uh, when it doesn't fall on a Sunday, we would be uh, serving our community in some important ways and, and having a good time there. We look forward to doing that again next year. But this morning, certainly, as a church in this country, we give thanks to God because of the many freedoms that have been granted to us by God's grace. I mean, look around the world at many other nations in the world and wonder why God put you here. We have been given so many freedoms, so many opportunities in this land of the free. And I think that uh, every opportunity that we have to recognize something like earthly freedom or the gifts that God gives us, particularly in this world, is an occasion for us to again recognize and value the heavenly version, the superior freedom that we are given in Christ. It is so very fascinating to me to see how very different American and Christian freedom really are. Though we are grateful for our country, we're grateful for the opportunities it affords us, even as churches and as Christians, that we can be free to share the gospel and to make uh, incredible use of those freedoms, even sending missionaries around the world. We are certainly aware that our ultimate freedom, our highest freedom, the very best freedom, only comes from Christ. And those two are, are very different. In fact, I, I think when you compare them, when you compare the freedoms of this country to the freedoms of God's kingdom in Christ, through faith in him, having heard the good news of Jesus Christ, American freedom doesn't seem like freedom at all. Christian freedom doesn't seem like freedom at all. Because our freedom is held in the hand of a sovereign God who ordains and controls all things. I think it's most natural for us to think as creatures in God's world and in this country of freedom as the right to do our own will. And yet when we come to Christ, we find a completely different, completely better freedom. It's something that many people would not consider to be freedom because it is the freedom to submit to the will of another. It's the freedom to, to do the will of another. It's the freedom to think the thoughts of another. It's the freedom to walk with another. It's the freedom to give our lives to another. As children, even as slaves of our King, our freedom in Christ is an incredible, life-transforming, unexpected gift of grace because of who our God is. 
our God is a king. Our God is not, as I long thought, a gentleman. I, I thought that so early in my Christian life, and uh, there was something that wasn't quite right about it. I would hear that, and I would say that, that God is a gentleman. He, he would never impose his will on someone else. But in fact, the more that I studied the Bible, the more that I studied even texts like we see this morning, I found that simply to be untrue. That God is something far better than a gentleman. He is a king. And he is a good king who loves us and has given his son for us and has promised never to leave or forsake us. He keeps us in his grip. And we rejoice over that today because that is at the heart of our freedom. As we look at this text this morning, we have an opportunity to consider yet again who this God is that we worship and we love. Who's the God who who has gripped us by grace and keeps us and loves us and holds us in his sovereign hold? And we see that this morning as we have been in the book of Amos by looking at the characteristics of God that are revealed in something that's difficult to read about. And that is his judgment. We've been seeing since the beginning of Amos the way God had judged all of these people around the nation of Israel. And then uh, just this past Sunday with the preaching of Pastor Kevin in the text just before this, we saw God's attention shift to his own elect, to his nation of Israel, to his chosen people who had fallen in in many ways with the other nations of the world living and thinking the way that they do and They were not spared similar judgment. And so now we have come to this point in the text where something shocking has happened. While those who who, who belong to God, those who who belong to Israel at this time may have looked around or or heard God's prophecy from Amos leading up to this point and and thought, wow, God God is really dishing it out. Suddenly they find that they, that they're not sinless. And they're confronted with God's judgment as well. Well, this morning, as we consider God's judgment in this text in in reference to Israel and the ways that they were living, we have an opportunity to consider three other truths about our God. And looking at the way that he executes his judgment in the world. And by doing, because we are in Christ, no longer feeling that tension of the Old Testament when when God's judgment was coming and yet there was also a coming Redeemer. We know that Redeemer to be Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord himself who saved us. We have an opportunity to look at this text and not only see the way that God executes his judgments, but also to see what God offers to those who humble themselves and fall before him and throw themselves into the freedom that he offers, the freedom to belong to him and to do his will. And so we want to see these one at a time this morning, beginning in verses 13 and 14. And here's the first. As we look at the way that God dealt with Israel in this text and and the way that judgment came, I want you to see one thing first that God did in executing his judgment. What did his judgment do? What what did he do? What made it so impactful first? We see in verses 13 and 14 that God dried up their strength. Look at verse 13. He says, Behold, I'm making a rut in the ground beneath you. Just as a wagon makes a rut when filled with sheaves, refuge will be lost from the swift 
and the strong will not strengthen his power, nor the warrior save his life. Now, I think it's clear from the Bible and from our own experience as fallen human beings in the world that the natural mode of fallen humanity is strength assumed. That's, in fact, what the nation of Israel did here. That's what you and I tend to do every day of our lives. We assume that we have some kind of inherent strength that belongs to us, that, that cannot be thwarted, and yet at some point we realize either by God's doing in our hearts and lives because he reveals the truth to us about ourselves or because of our own failures as we come against a very hard world, we realize that inherent strength among us is just that. It is assumed. But it's fleeting. It is not real. It's not real strength. And instead, just like the nation of Israel, it becomes a distraction the pursuit of our own strength in our own will, according to our own ways in this world, becomes a distraction to us from seeking just as we do true freedom in Christ, true strength in Christ. Listen to what God says. He uses a, an agricultural metaphor to bring the point home. He says, behold, I am making a rut in the ground beneath you just as a wagon makes a rut when filled with sheaves. You can imagine that, a wagon that is, that is full of some kind of produce and it's rolling along the ground and because it's so heavy and burdened, it actually starts to wear a rut in the ground and, and even slow down. That, that pole begins to lose strength. This is something very similar to what God is talking about here. Because they had lifted themselves up in strength, because they had assumed their own strength, doing their own will, thinking their own thoughts, here comes God to slow them down, to burden them, to weigh them down. It's the idea of a crushing weight pressing down upon you in order to, to get your attention. And here it is a part of God's judgment against them. Again, we see that strength is an illusion. We know that in our own lives. If we really take time to think about it, sometimes you and I are so embroiled in, in the present moment that we lose sight of that reality. When you and I came into this world, how did we arrive? We arrived without any strength of our own. We arrived as, as babies, naked, unable to feed ourselves, unable to clothe ourselves, unable to clean ourselves, no strength whatsoever. If it wasn't because of the strength of someone else, we would have never made it. We wouldn't have survived. And then at the end of our lives, if we live long enough and our bodies age enough, we find ourselves in, in almost the exact same situation. We lose the ability to feed ourselves, care for ourselves, clothe ourselves, clean ourselves. And we're dependent again on the strength of someone else who's going to come and care for us and do all of those things. And without them, we just couldn't keep going. But the big problem, the big problem for me is that there are a relative few years in the middle. Those few years tempt us with the illusion of strength. We have energy for a moment. We run out into the world with, with enormous ambition. We're able to accomplish things, some of us even great things. It's true that, that modern man is, is a marvel. And yet all of those things seem to cloud our vision from what is true, that, that our assumed strength is, in fact, no strength at all. 
This, my friends, is the great conflict of every life. It's the conflict of even the Christian life. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 17, there's a picture laid out there between verses 5 and 9. It's a picture of two trees. They're both in the desert. One tree has turned its heart, because it represents a person, away from the living God. And something interesting is said by Jeremiah. He says that this person makes flesh his strength. He is the kind of person that relies on himself. He's what we might call today a a man's man or a, a woman's woman or, I suppose, a child's child. Living his own life, doing his own thing in his own strength. But there's another tree in the desert. There's another tree in that picture, and it's a different kind of person. And it's a person who has abandoned self-strength, who has abandoned self-will, and has instead extended his or her roots into the stream of God's strength, and has made the Lord his trust, and he trusts in the Lord He is the one that he clings to. He is the one that he looks to. What we know about every Christian that's sitting here this morning, myself included, is that even in this moment, sitting here or standing here, we're a hybrid of the two trees. Sometimes you and I are like that good fruit tree that has our roots extended in the stream of God's grace and strength, and he is working through us, and we're bearing good fruit to his glory, all because of his strength, not because of any of ours. But sometimes, sometimes we're like that thorn tree that doesn't bear any good fruit, because we, we turn yet again. I do it all the time, and I make flesh my strength. I make my plan my hope. And therefore, the Christian life becomes repeatedly a process of repentance. This is what we see in the New Testament in the life of the Apostle Paul and his words that were also inspired by the Holy Spirit when he talks about how he found real strength, real contentment as a Christian. Do you remember how he found it? He found it not by embracing strength, but by embracing his own weakness. This was the secret of his strength. And in that way, God would not allow his weakness to be a hindrance to him, but rather he accomplished his greatest plans through the weakness of the Apostle Paul. He even said, when I am weak, then I am strong. He's talking about that dedication to God, that that full-faced view of God in which he looks to him for all of his strength and all of his hope and all of his truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, but it is one that, Every time I think of it, every time I read it, it collides with what I more commonly think about myself. That strength is my strength. There's a fantastic little book by who is arguably one of, if not the greatest Christian theologian of the last 50 or 100 years, J.I. Packer, and it's a book called Weakness is the Way. I want to read just a couple of sentences here as they they illustrate exactly what we're seeing. He says this, our proud heart shrinks from weakness, real or fancied, in all its forms, as we've already noted, and they embrace whatever looks like strength, including the goal 
and the reality of affluence, the way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weakness in spiritual things. How rich does it get? Those words just, they hang in the air over us. It's our prayer that God would use a text like this and even words from Packer like these and and rain upon us this, this soaking reminder that we are not strong and our weakness is our greatest strength. It is our hope that we would look to God in these ways. You see, that's why God in his judgment, which I believe among his chosen people, any kind of discipline is a gift of grace intended and used by him to draw us back to himself. That even here as we see this, it calls us back to repentance. It calls us to see the truth of our lives. Even as we read in verse 14, he says, refuge will be lost from the swift. He will so burden those who think that they're swift in their lives and that they can do their own, that even when they face his discipline, they may flee from it. He will not let that happen. And instead, he will drain their strength so that they have no power. He says, nor the warrior. This is key language. Nor the warrior save his life. If we want to make good use of a text like this in our personal lives, and I know that we do, we must exult in God by doing this, by enjoying our weaknesses to the glory of God. I wonder when was the last time that you sat down and made a list, made a list of all your weaknesses. That doesn't make much sense to us, does it? We, we like to make, make a list of all of our strengths. But I want to encourage you to consider maybe this week taking some time and writing down all of your weaknesses. Where are all of the places in your life that you're in desperate need of God's strength to work in you and for you and through you because you simply cannot do it on your own? As you pray about that, you may find that God shows you in his word, reminds you of your own life, key ways that you can be enjoying those weaknesses by submitting them to him so that you may gain strength from his strength when your strength has dried up. List them, think on them, rejoice over them in Christ, and ask God to replace them with the benefits of his strength. This is a key move in the Christian life. It is central to what it means to be a Christian on a daily basis. Because if you've noticed, and hopefully you're seeing it even more this morning, You're bent towards strength. And that could be a great distraction to us. Because what we find in in the Bible, what we find in Christ, is that actually He, He is our strength. And we look to Him to care for us. Second, as we look at the way that God executed this discipline and judgment in Israel, is that in addition to drying up strength, God disarmed escape. Look at verse 15. It says, The one who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will the one who rides the horse save his life. When our strength fails, 
It is our natural tendency to run, to escape, to find some kind of shelter. Even those who, who face God's judgment or God's discipline, they have uh, a realization of their sin before him. Their need to change, often it bears in us or, or births in us a, a desire to escape, to run away. I believe the people of this text are feeling just that. Wouldn't you? If your strength was all drying up and, and you were being disarmed, even in whatever weapons you thought you could take up in life, they were, they were simply not working, you would panic. I think this is what naturally happens before God when we fear him, we fear his judgment, we fear his discipline. That word panic is an interesting one. It's, it's one actually that comes from a, a Greek word about a, a Greek mythological god named, named Pan. And Pan was, was the god of the, of the forest, of the of woodland areas. And if you were to go out into the woods, you could get disoriented. And it was the belief that, that Pan was, was disorienting you and causing you to panic. It's the same kind of disorienting feeling that we have. It's the same one that they have. But make no mistake here. The sense is that we must flee from God's anger because, because no one can stand there. No one can stand. I think that that is why so many people run from God when they hear the gospel. When they hear about God, when they hear about his truth, when they hear about his holiness, they run as far away as they can. They run off to other gods, gods that don't exist. They run off into other ways of living, other hopes and dreams. I see this in my own life. You probably see this propensity to escape in your life. We're so good at it. I, I, I see at least four ways that we tend to escape. Maybe some of these will ring true for you. First, we deny. Perhaps it is the, the God who loves us. We, we deny that he's really for us, and therefore we try to escape from him in fear of his judgment or his discipline. Or you face some other kind of challenge in life, and you deny that it exists. You try to ignore it and make it go away. Or maybe you're the kind of person that, that tends to fill up those moments with distraction. You find something else to put your mind on, to take your mind off of God, to take your mind off of maybe his word, something else in your life. Others of us, when we're in this situation, we, we tend to go into destruction mode. We start lashing out and bearing thorns at all of those around us. Others will try to escape simply in the most tragic of all, which is death or self-death. Here we can really identify with what these people may have been feeling before God as sinners, the need to escape and to run. If you really want to feel the inability to escape, a little hint of what it may be like to stand before God under his judgment, just wait for a storm. You know, not a little storm, not a passing shower in the summer, but a really big storm one that brings destruction, one that shakes the ground. Have you ever been there before? All of a sudden, not only is your strength drying up, but your ability to escape dries up. Sure, you can run to a basement, but there's no hope there. 
Because a storm like this, it surrounds you, doesn't it? It's, it's over you, crashing in thunder. The wind is coming in from all directions. You are surrounded. Even the ground beneath you is shaking. You cannot escape. It's just a small little earthly picture of what it is like to be before God's judgment. You want to, but you can't escape. This truth was brought home to us even earlier by the very nature of God's presence in the Psalms. Now, this psalm is giving us a glimpse of of the way that we can see God, the way that we can draw near to him and hope in him by grace. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us as sinners, he lived a perfect life in our place and died on the cross in our place, and he rose from the dead in our place so that he could bring us into his family, that he could be our strength, that he himself could be our escape, and we would actually flee to the God who loves us. But you hear it here. It works both ways. The truth is in Psalm 139. They can cut coming and they can cut going. If you are in Christ and you hear these words, they ought to make your heart sore. They ought to give you comfort that you are in Christ, in a God who is everywhere. And if you're not in Christ, if you're merely one small, weak person in the midst of God's storm, of his judgment or his wrath or his, his righteous expectations according to his law, and you know that you don't belong to him, well, these words ought to be equally frightening to you because you've never met anyone like this. Hear it again. Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the sky, into outer space, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of the earth, behold, you're there. If I take up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there. Well, this is where the rub comes between two kinds of people in the world, those who belong to this God, and they rejoice that no matter where they go, no matter what happens, he's there with his sovereign grip on them, or those apart from Christ realize they cannot escape him. They cannot escape his gaze. They they cannot escape his power. They cannot escape his judgment. But we in Christ rejoice because even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will take hold of me. If God is opposed to you, if you don't belong to him, it makes perfect sense to flee. But once you hear of the good news of Christ who has taken our judgment and punishment, it makes perfect sense to draw close to him because he is our escape. But that, I believe, is the key. What is the difference between those who for years run and flee from him and then suddenly they draw near to him in faith? What has happened that made that difference? What happened in my life that made that difference? Because I filled the first 18 years of my life even with Christianized versions of escape from God. 
I tried to do everything that I could without him. All of my religiosity was feigned. It reflected no truth of my heart. And then suddenly, in the summer of 1995, something happened. Something changed. I didn't change it. I didn't simply just decide to turn around one day. But what happened? The grace of God came home to me. You see, you'll never come to Christ if you think that he is your enemy. No one runs to their enemy. They always flee. That's, that's why there's a sense of escape here in this text and lots of other places in the scriptures around the world. But once you come to see the grace of God in Christ and you see that his grace is for you and that you can come into him and he will take hold of you and he will never leave you or forsake you, he will keep you, he will not let you get away, then, then you will come. And that's what the gospel offers us, isn't it? It offers us invitation after invitation. It offers us even invitations for Christians. Because like me, sometimes you drift away. You try to escape or run for a season. And that invitation is yet again for you to come back to Christ, to unite with him in the first place if you are not a Christian, and then to come back to him over and over again. Listen to this, this wonderful Puritan hymn. It's just a couple of verses. It says, What sweet invitations the gospel contains to men heavy laden, with bondage and chains, it welcomes the weary to come and be blessed with ease from their burdens in Jesus to rest. These are the truths that we need in daily life. And so as we come even to this point in our text, I would encourage you in this way, that you and I would make it an intentional effort to again exalt in God by drawing near to him. I have a feeling that it's true for most of us. That most of us go days or longer without really drawing near to him. Life is very busy. We have lots to do. Our list is long. Pressures are high. And one day slips past, another slips past. And then we're in just a routine of our own thing. But here, even as we read these truths and we see God's judgment being expressed and an inability to escape, though we want to, that instead we would see it as an opportunity to draw near daily by faith. Because in this world, from all that's going on in the fallenness of this world, even when it comes to the righteous requirements that God has over all people, he himself is our escape. But again, that's not all. But third, we see something else that God does in judgment. He not only dries up strength, he not only disarms the ability to escape and hems people in, but he also melts courage. We see this last in verse 16. Notice what Amos says, even the bravest, oh, key words, Always uh, circle those, make note of those when you see them. Those heavy words that pack the punch, even the bravest 
among the warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. I wonder if you think for just a moment, who is the bravest person that you know? Who is the bravest person that you know? For Israel, the bravest people that they knew were their warriors. The warriors of the nation were the bravest of all people, the toughest, those who would stand in, those who would stand their ground. But we're seeing something astounding, that in the face of God's judgment, even the most brave of Israel, the highest, most elite warrior who had been battle-tested year after year after year, even against giant enemies, would flee naked. That they would drop their weapons and they would run. God's presence, his judgment upon them is bringing a kind of heat and that heat is melting their courage. Dads of sons know what this is all about because dads with sons have sons who excel in courage. It's assumed courage. It's not real courage. And so every now and then when that courage surges, say on a Saturday, and one of those sons wants to wrestle, it doesn't take long for dad to melt that courage. could be just one pressure point, usually one right in here, or one right in here, or one right back here. <laughs> and suddenly they are crying, uncle. You see, we are like that even as adults. The bravest of all people in our world melt down in the presence of God. They cannot stand. They will not stand. They want not to stand. There's an enormous difference between us and God, one that we often lose sight of. I will never forget uh, one of the most striking images uh, among many when uh, many of us, if you've been around long enough, saw the 9-11 attacks. Uh, One of the images, you know, in addition to the building crumbling to the ground and smoke everywhere that will never leave my memory of that day. I can see where I was watching this unfold on TV. It was as one of the towers were coming down and there was this wide-angle shot of a street and smoke began filling the downtown area and you just saw police after police, firemen after firemen, the bravest of the land, running for their lives. I've never seen, I've never seen the bravest people in my life do that. This is what happens to every person when they come before God. If they're not assured of his grace, they run. They run frightened. It's always been this way. It will always be this way because this God is unmatched in his sovereignty. Israel at this time had expected that this day that they were hearing about, this day of coming judgment was going to be judgment just on the nations and one of deliverance for them. But what happened? 
they, in the midst of it, failed to see their own failures. They suffered from, from a kind of exceptionalism in the world that they somehow were untouchable, that they had excelled past all the others, and that they were, they were the ones who, who would skate through God's righteous requirements. And yet on this day, they were caught off guard by the truth of the situation. This is a valuable lesson for all of us. It's a valuable lesson for all nations, even in this day. That none are so courageous that they can stand before the true God. But yet instead must bow before him. Truly, again, weakness is the way. Listen once again to these words from J.I. Packer. One more gem where he says, for all Christians, the likelihood is rather that as our discipleship continues, God will make us increasingly weakness conscious and pain aware so that we may learn with Paul that, we, that when we are conscious of being weak, then and only then may we become truly strong in the Lord. That brings us to our last sort of application to life that you would consider this week and write down and to begin to make a practice in your life, if not already, and it begins like the other two, that we would exult in God, but we would do so by placing our courage in Christ. I think the biggest problem for many people is that their courage exists outside of Christ. That they are courageous in and of themselves in the things that they can do and the things that they can think just as we have been seeing here, but instead, what is God's call to us? God's call is to lay down our spiritual weapons against him and to draw near to him and place our courage in him. Isn't that what we need today? Don't we need courage that's grounded in God's sovereign hold of the world, his hold of us? I think that's what we need today, that he would become our courage well, friends, that only happens first by coming to Christ, and it could be that you're here today and that you don't know Christ, that you need to come to him, that you are still holding on to your own strength, or you, you're still turning your eye and ear away from him, looking for hope somewhere else, or perhaps that you are clinging to your own courage of what the future may hold and your ability to handle it, maybe even before God. I've heard some people say, they're not concerned about coming to Christ because they'll take their chances on the day of judgment. They feel that they've been pretty good. Well, friends, that's not courage. That, that is stupidity. Instead, what we are calling one another to do is to consider carefully how we can be more in Christ, that we can, we can push further into his sovereign care of us and his grace and his love and his gladness, which he fills our hearts with. And that begins by coming to him by faith. If that's you today, we want to encourage you that this would be the day of your conversion, that you would turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ, that you would repent and you would come into him and fall before him as someone who says to him, I have no strength. I see that I cannot escape and I, I don't even want to. I want to come in. I want to belong to you. I want you to be my courage. I want you to be my hope.
I want you to be my king. I pray that that will happen for many people today around our country and world as they hear preaching in their churches on this Sunday morning. And if that is you, please let us know that we can walk with you and encourage you, that you may even become uh, one, of our, one of our family in our church so we can minister together. And yet for the rest of us, we see in texts like these ways that we can humble ourselves even more before God and that we can lay our lives before him again and again and again, even this morning, and ask him, ask him to use us and to fill us and to satisfy us and to teach us in every way so that we may become like his son. Let's stand together and pray about this as we prepare our hearts to sing once again to this God who has a sovereign hold on us and our world. Our Father in heaven, we come to you yet again this morning and we we give you thanks because you are just that. You are in control. You have gripped us by your grace and you will not let us go. You are, you are caring for us. You are feeding us. You are teaching us. We pray that by your spirit, you'll continue to conform us as a church to the image of your son. We want to be more like him. We want to know you more by faith in him. And so we, we pray that you would do even what we have seen here that if there is any strength in us that we are clinging to, that you, would, that you would dry it up. And that if there is any way in which we are seeking to run from you rather than to you, that you would draw us close to you by grace. And also that you would give us courage because of you, not because of us. And that we would live in the courage of your perfect care, that you are king and no one, no one can stand before you. And yet you have brought us in to sit at your table and to feast with you as your people. You are king. So we give you thanks this morning and we pray that you would help us to see you afresh and anew as the king of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.